Lord, as we open your word today, open our hearts and our minds to receive it as your teaching. May our attitude before you be such that we are ready and willing to be trained, to be taught, even to be reproved and corrected by you and your word, overcoming us any pockets of unbelief and rebellion where human wisdom resists and fights against the eternal wisdom that comes from you from above give me grace to teach it well to to explain in ways that help bring clarity and and certainty and a and a appeal to the hearts of people for faith and greater faith still give those who listen discernment to weigh my words against the words of scripture against your words and grace to hold on to what is good we pray in the name of Jesus amen last week the text was 1st Corinthians 2 1 through 5 the title of the message was uh, forgive the review here but did the gospel come to you in a demonstration of God's spirit and power and the kind of cut to the chase the answer to that question was actually um, maybe <laughs> that's what that really was the answer maybe it it did it was kind of a, I hope the gospel came to you. With most of you, I'm assured the gospel came to you in the demonstration of God's spirit and power. But in any particular case, maybe not. Because it's certainly possible that the gospel to any, any one particular person did not come to you in a demonstration of God's spirit and power. And the basis for, for saying that is that the demonstration of God's spirit and power that 1 Corinthians 2 is talking about, that Paul was thinking about as he wrote those words, and, they, and it sounds a little clumsy way to say it, a demonstration of God's spirit and power, because that's just the way Paul wrote it. It's not really the way you'd expect someone to talk. Did the gospel come to you in the demonstration of God's spirit and power? But that's just what Paul says. And what he was thinking about, the basis for that maybe is that that what he's thinking about in the demonstration of God's spirit and power is the exertion of God's power by God's Holy Spirit in enabling a person to believe the gospel and be saved. We sang about it in one of these songs. I know I don't know how that happens, but it happened to me. That's the song. The Bible says we were dead toward God in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 1, Ephesians 2, 5. And if you are sitting here today and you are now alive toward God, it can only be due to an exertion of God's power in you that brought you, that made you come alive. The dead are powerless to come alive all by themselves. They can't do it. They're absolutely helpless. They're absolutely passive. They can do nothing uh, for themselves. And really, more to Paul's bigger argument here in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, you, you know, it's, it, it's not the speaker you heard. There's no eloquent speaker, no powerful speaker, you know, who, you know who's so spellbinding that even the dead come to life as a result of his words, his teaching, his manner. No, it couldn't happen like that. 
The power of salvation is not in the one who shares the gospel, whether it's someone speaking from a pulpit like I am or, or just someone who's sharing Christ out, out in public or in private or, you're, or some people, a lot of people were led to Christ by their mom when they were very young. It's not in their, it's not in their presentation. It's not in them. And it's not in the person who hears only. It's the Holy Spirit who works in the hearts of people to cause them to hear, and like hear with ears to hear, to really hear, to get the gospel. He works powerfully in us. So it comes, if you believed, if you believed, it came to you in a demonstration of God's spirit and power. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Well, if you're here this morning, and you really could, we didn't sing this song this morning, but if you could sing from your heart and you mean it, I once was blind, but now I see, then this has happened to you. The gospel did come to you at some point in a, in a demonstration of God's spirit and power. There was a time when you heard the gospel and it worked powerfully in you and the scales fell from your eyes, you know, like, like Saul, soon to be Paul. You know, that, it's, it was like that. You could see it in a way you couldn't see it before. In 1738, Charles Wesley wrote in, of this same thing in in words that still still get us. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused, God's eye, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, making alive. It was God. It was God's power. Life-giving, sight-giving power. It wasn't... This is what the Bible teaches in this passage and others, but really I was camping on it because this is what this whole paragraph, this whole chapter is about, including what we're coming to today. It wasn't... Why did you believe? It wasn't that the preacher was extra good that day. Or it wasn't that you went and saw an extra good preacher like Billy Graham or something. It wasn't, it wasn't that. That's not why you believed. And it wasn't in any particular moral or spiritual competence in you. Well, I was smart enough. You know, I was, uh, I was uh, open enough. I was done anything enough. It was in me. You know, I, I was clever enough. No, it was in the power of God in drawing you to himself. Remember Acts 16? It's not my notes, but the Lord opened her heart to listen to the words that Paul was speaking. Remember that? Jesus says, no one can come to me unless he is drawn. Well, if you believe now, if you're trusting Christ for your salvation if your plan for overcoming the grave is Christ and what he did for you 
If you look back at the cross, you consider the cross in your mind's eye, and you see or you recognize that your sins were there, that that had to do with you personally. If your heart calls out to Christ as a living person, He's someone you, you know and you want to know better. He's not just a historical figure. He's not just a flannel graph you know, figure. He's not the picture in a children's Bible. He's not a picture on your grandparents' wall. But He's a person. That you know, that you want to, you want to know more, you want to know better, and you, you, you speak to Him. If, if Christ has, well, let's put it this way, if He has deeply complicated your life in fallen flesh, if you look forward to the return of Christ, and you look forward to the time when, when we're finally done forever, with sin and with what it brings you know all the the sickness the mourning the crying death then the answer is yes absolutely the gospel has come to you in a demonstration of God's spirit and power and also the answer is, if not, if not, if none of these things, are, these things aren't true, you don't look back to the cross and see your sins there. If Jesus to you is the flannel graph figure or the picture in a book or a children's Bible or a, pic, you know, and a picture on a wall or something, it's just, or a historical figure, if you don't know him or want to know him, because you think, well, he can't be known. He can't be known. He's dead. You know, you can know about George Washington. You can't know George Washington. He's dead. If that's the way Jesus is to you, then, then no. Though you may have heard it lots of times. And the speaker might be good or might be bad or might be boring or might be thrilling. But if, it, if you haven't believed, no matter what it was like when you heard it, the many times or maybe the best time where it was really done well. No, the gospel did not come to you in a, in a demonstration of God's spirit and power. But it still may, and it will. It's a great mystery, but it will, if you will, while you still have life and breath. Well, this week, you know, I'm kind of moving on to the next paragraph in 1 Corinthians 2 really the rest of the chapter first paragraph or two but the question is do you have the mind of Christ that's going to come up at the very last verse do you have the mind of Christ and where we've been so far is a clue to where the, what the answer is going to be and you know what it's going to be it's going to be maybe 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 you have the mind of Christ whatever that means we'll, we'll talk about what it means but maybe you don't. I, I, may, I may take a verse of Scripture away from you today. Uh, you, know, you, know what I'm, you know what I mean. You know, it happens sometimes. This is what it happens sometimes. You take, I'm talking about taking a verse away. When some, a verse becomes dear or becomes comforting or encouraging to you because of what you think it means, and then someone comes along... Half years later and convinces you 
that it doesn't mean what you thought it meant. And, you know, you're glad to know the truth. You know, you're, you don't want to be, but still, it's kind of a, it's a bummer. You know, it's no, you know, it's like, oh, man, I thought that verse, you know, I thought uh, that might happen. That might happen to you today at, at 2.9. So let's deal with it first. 2.9, 1 Corinthians 2.9 in the English Standard Version, and, and Wayne has it up there. You're going to do well to have, if you have your Bible with you today, you're going to do well to look at your own Bible and, it's going to help you, but Wayne has the verse up there. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, the English Standard has doesn't read very well as a standalone verse. The English Standard invites us to wait for something. You know, okay, all these things are like parallel phrases, and we're waiting for something else to complete the thought, which is right, by the way, I think. But... It reads a little bit different in other versions, like the King James, and they're now the King James. And it also could be NIV, or it could be some other translations, but I just chose this one to illustrate it. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Many Christians read that verse in isolation and see a reference to heaven there the glories of the hereafter and one of the reasons i think they do and kind of invites us to do that is because of that word prepared and it just reminds us of john you know of john uh, chapter 14 where jesus says i go to prepare a place for you and this word you know this verse has prepared so we kind of we're we're um, predisposed to think of it you know a place prepared for us and this thing all the things which God hath prepared for them that love him, they seem similar. And so if you read this verse and you're thinking of, you think of it as a description of heaven, the thought would be, and this is, and this is a teaching too that people you've heard, we really, see this is, this is what heaven is, so we really can't say a whole lot about what heaven will be like and we can't put much uh, content to it because the heart of man, we can't even imagine it's not in us to even imagine what heaven's going to be like. We just know it's going to be unimaginably glorious. We can't even talk about it really very much until we get there because it's just, you know, that nothing is, eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have ever entered into the heart of man. So what, we don't know. We don't know what it's like. It's just going to be unimaginably glorious. That's a thought that comes to mind for some folks when they read this, this verse. But we can know that that interpretation is wrong for two reasons, and there's a big reason and a little reason. The little reason, which isn't that little, <laughs> by the way, is that the next verse completes the thought in a way that totally undermines the interpretation that it's about the unknowability of the glories of heaven. Back to English Standard, but read, them both, read the two verses together. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Next verse. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Well, whatever it's talking about is saying that we, it has been revealed to us. 
No, we didn't see it. No, we haven't heard it. We, ha- we haven't even imagined it, but God has revealed it to us through the Spirit. So we're not talking about what, something that is unknowable. We're talking about something that is unknowable, except that God has revealed it to us. He's already done it. That's, you know, so it's not about the unknowability of, every, of anything. It's about something that, we, that was unknowable other than except that God has revealed it to us. So you can't, you know, even if it, we're talking about heaven, this, that gets to the bigger reason. It says what we couldn't know about heaven. If this was, I don't think it's about heaven. But what we couldn't know about heaven, God has told us. So it's not about the unknowability of anything. Here's the big reason why that that unknowability of heaven interpretation is wrong. The bigger reason is that Paul's not talking about heaven at all. He's not been talking about heaven. He's not talking about heaven here. Has anything in 1 Corinthians, you know, we're like three or four weeks into into this 1 Corinthians, and and you've read it before uh, probably. Has anything in 1 Corinthians up to this point been about heaven? Is he talking about it? I, I kind of imagine Paul teaching a Sunday school class, you know, in Corinth. And he just, his teaching is just, re, you know, he's just reciting this, what we have written here. And he gets up to 2.9, this verse, where he's, you know, he's talking about the, the, these things that were hidden are now revealed to us. And I think someone's sticking their hand up in the air and say, so are you saying that we can't know anything about heaven at all until we get there? And and I just think of the the apostle would say, heaven, (laughs) heaven, why are you asking me about heaven? You know, have you been paying attention so far? You know, we, you know, have you been listening? I'm not talking about heaven. I haven't been talking. You think you Corinthians, you know what they're, Chloe's people said it right. You get, what is with you people? Listen. So what is he talking about? If not heaven, you can take it down. He's, he is talking about the wisdom of God embodied in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which now, in, in, the, in his historical context, which now has been revealed through the teaching of the people like himself and Apollos and Peter and others, and it has been revealed to, to, by God personally to everyone who has believed. We're, the wisdom of God embodied in the gospel. And let's walk through the passage, and starting at the beginning of the chapter, just to see the context. And I'm just going to read the first five verses. And Wayne, you can put these up and leave them up as we go through. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now our passage is a verse 6. 
Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. In other words, not human wisdom, but there is a wisdom in this. It's a wisdom of God, a superior wisdom, a wisdom beyond the reach of human wisdom. Still verse 6. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. God still, we're talking about God's plan of salvation. It wasn't an afterthought, was it? Planned from eternity past. Decreed. Verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You can leave it up there. But just think about, when you think of the cross, think of the crucifixion of Christ, and think of those who were most culpable from a human perspective for this terrible crime, really, of executing God's unique, special son, God in human flesh. Never committed a single sin in his whole life, performed miracles healing the sick, gives sight to the blind, hearing of the deaf, raises the dead, feeds the thousands. You know, think of those who made the calculation, you know, then that this man needs to be publicly humiliated, abused, and executed. Well, certainly the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, right? Certainly they're culpable. Religious leadership of Israel, they're the instigators. They were the orchestrators of the whole thing from beginning to end. They were the ones who, who uh, got it rolling, right? They had to co-opt the Roman authorities, but they, but they were really behind it. There was no one for, as a group more learned, more educated, more socially advanced. Uh, they were the elite. They were, in many cases, wealthy, politically savvy, worldly wise. You remember after Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, very publicly, the wise men of you know the wise men of Jerusalem got together, had a meeting to had to decide what to do. And the wisest of the worldly wise, old Caiaphas, you know, he's the one that brought the wisdom that you know that really put the meeting to an end, and he he had the last say, the wise old Caiaphas. He says, John eleven, you know, you guys, you know, this meeting they're having. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You know, and of course, in saying that, he utters an, an unintentional prophecy. But he said it in utter ignorance, didn't he? What he was thinking about when he said that, better for one man to die than the whole nation to perish, he, he couldn't have been further off he was, for all his worldly wisdom, Caiaphas was an absolute stranger, even an enemy, to the wisdom of God. He didn't have a clue. He had nothing in common with the wisdom of God. Of course, Pontius Pilate, he's another responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. He's the only one who could give the order, and he, and he did. 
And think of that scene in John 19 where, where Pilate is interrogating Jesus and Pilate says, Do, this is John 19:10. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And think of that. There's this obscure government functionary whose name would would be utterly lost to history if not for his connection to Jesus Christ. There's no way in the world you would know the name of Pontius Pilate if not for his connection to Jesus. Do you know who was governor before Pontius? Do you know who was governor after? I don't. In this this obscure government functionary whose name we wouldn't know other than what this scene, you know, this, his connection to Jesus. He's scolding Jesus, and he's saying, in effect, I don't think you realize who I am. Can you imagine that? I don't think you know who I am. I don't think you're fully appreciating who I am and what I can do for you or what I can do to you. Could there be a greater irony in all of history than Pilate telling Jesus, I don't think you know who I am. And whether we're talking about Pilate or the Jewish religious leadership, worldly wisdom, you know, the elite, the powerful, you know, the learned, the politically savvy, you know, the, real, the people that really make things happen and get things done, It was no help at all in recognizing Jesus for who he is or in recognizing what God was doing through Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection from the dead. And if worldly, Paul makes a simple point, 1 Corinthians 2. If worldly wisdom did lead to spiritual insight, uh, they would not have done what they did. But worldly wisdom doesn't lead anyone into God's wisdom. Why? Because it only comes by revelation. It only comes by God letting us see it, opening our eyes to it. Verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen. You see? You see what the context has been? Here we come to this verse. What no eye has seen, nor heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Once again, don't stick your hand up and ask a question about heaven. It's the gospel. And how does this work? Middle of verse 10. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? In other words, you alone know the thoughts of your own mind. You know, you have immediate knowledge of what's going on in your own mind. You know your thoughts and it remains absolutely hidden to everybody else. You know, you, you, you know, you're, you know, you know, and that's the way it is with God. God's spirit knows. So also, verse 11, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. How can we 
understand, receive, believe, rest in. How can we how can we take hold of the thoughts of God? It's only because God's made us sharers in his spirit who reveals these things to us. And he's verse 13, and we, and I think the we here is people like Paul and Peter and Apollos, and even, you know, by extension, people like me here today, you know, or, or, or even you when you share the gospel with someone. We impart this, this knowledge, this insight, impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And those who are spiritual being those people who also have been given this in, who have been allowed to tap into this, uh, you know, this, this Holy Spirit of God who knows the thoughts of God, that we might understand these things. Verse 14, the natural person... That natural person, that's just us, how we came. How we came into this world, natural. Nothing supernatural about us. Not someone who hasn't shared in this, who hasn't been given to tap into this, uh, this mind of God. The natural person is only operating on a no human level. Does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able. Wow. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He doesn't have a category for it. He doesn't have a way to understand it. He's trying to, he, he, it's like he's trying to uh, understand Chinese, but he doesn't know Chinese. You know, he doesn't have that. It's not quite like that because you have to learn Chinese. This is something that's given to you. So it's so the, 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 um, metaphor breaks down but remember the remember the quote from this the intellectually brilliant worldly wise philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche that uh, died in 1900 I quoted a couple of weeks ago I, th I think two weeks ago but he says how about Christian faith about the Christian God about the Christian believers how foolish and imbecilic to follow one who died and then to claim that that death is victory. There's foolishness and there's foolishness, he said. There's madness and there's madness. But to call death victory is the ultimate madness of all. This is a pathetic deity and he's followed by a pathetic people. It's foolishness to him. Verse 15, the spiritual person, the one who has the spirit, the one who has a capability, he judges, which means he discerns or he weighs, not judges like uh, judgmentalism. He discerns, he weighs all things, but he is himself to be judged by no one, and I say by no one else, like by the natural man. In other words, like, like the uh, Nietzsche quote, for all his intellectual uh, brilliance, for all his education, for all his worldly wisdom, Friedrich Nietzsche was absolutely out of his depth in passing judgment on your faith in the crucified Jesus, in crucified and risen Jesus. He's because he doesn't know. He he doesn't have something you have that enables you to receive believe 
trust. He, he's got scales over his eyes that you, that you no longer have. There's something alive in you that's not alive in him. And this is the case with anyone else who's speaking to you or about your faith from the narrowed perspective of human wisdom no matter how much human wisdom they have because you have something they don't know anything about and cannot know unless they too lay down that human pride and receive from God what only God can give they don't get it because they don't got it you know they don't have the holy spirit's help that would sh- open their who would open their eyes to the to the truth and to, to adapt biblical language from elsewhere they do not have because they will not ask verse 16 for who has understood the mind of the lord as to instruct him and the expected answer is no one no one but we have we who believe we who have we have the mind of Christ now mind of Christ what a phrase we have the mind of Christ what does it mean it let me suggest this to you it doesn't mean and it could never mean that you or I know everything Christ knows I mean can it possibly mean that we know everything Christ knows that like somehow his mind has been downloaded into ours and you know so that we think you know we know everything he knows or or could it mean that we have immediate insight or access into the thoughts of Christ's mind the way we know our own thoughts. You know, nobody knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man is in him. Is that like, we, you know, we know what Christ is thinking all the time? Well, no. And far less than that, we cannot take this striking statement, we have the mind of Christ, as a sort of... Uh, divine baptism on everything that might pop into our heads and there are christians who have taken it this way that we have the mind of christ so whatever i decide christ has decided whatever i think want to do christ wants to do whatever i desire christ you know they some sort of a some sort of a instant sanctification of everything that's going on in our own minds well you just just remember who paul's talking to here you know this church this Corinthian church. I mean, those Christians who had a lax attitude toward sexual immorality in the church, and or maybe even a little bit of pride in not being judgmental. You know, we're tolerant and we're welcoming. You know, about their own tolerance of this horrible situation. They were not thinking like Christ about that matter. They were. Their thoughts were not the thoughts of Christ on that. Or or the or the Christian who we know this is going on in that church too. The Christian who thought to himself, I am not going to take that from anybody. I don't care if they are a fellow church member or a fellow member of the church. I'm suing them. I'm suing them. 
That person was not thinking the thoughts of Christ in that, you know, in that calculation. Or, or the Christian, you know, when we get later on in the book, uh, the Christian who thought to himself, hey, we're having one of our love feasts today. Tell you what, I, I, you know, I think I'm going to get there early before anyone else and gorge myself on all the food and drink up all the wine. You know, he, he's not thinking the thoughts of Christ about that. And yet Paul is telling these Corinthian believers generally, you know, we have the mind of Christ. What does it mean? It means that God has quickened our understander to, uh, to receive the gospel. It, it, it does mean the, the word of the cross has been made to resonate with our spirits. Because God did a work in you. So that it would resonate. He made you alive. He gave you ears to hear. He gave you eyes to see. You, you almost certainly. When did this happen to us? You know like last week I said. When did this. When did you first hear the gospel and really get it? You know, Some people can't even remember. And. Some people think back, maybe it's dramatic, maybe it's not. But you almost certainly were unaware of something powerful and profound in the deepest part of your being when you found yourself able and willing to embrace and rejoice in the wisdom of God, which is the word of the cross, which is God's way of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So the original question, do you have the mind of Christ? Do you have the mind of Christ? Is an, it's another variation of the, the first one. <laughs> Is to you, Savior and Lord. That's how you think of Him. If He's Savior and Lord to you, and not, like I said, not just a historical figure like you know like George Washington or something or a legendary figure like Paul Bunyan or a picture on a wall or a picture in the back of a children's bible or on the cover or something like that. if he's if he's a person to you and if you love him you love him because he first loved you and loves you still if 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 you if your heart you know, thrills and at the same time is profoundly humbled, which is an odd thing. Just to be happy and thrilled about something at the same time humbled about something at the thought that he laid down his life so that you might have everlasting life. If, if you want to and are really coming to love what Christ loves, Desire what Christ desires. Uh, grieve at what Christ grieves at. Yes, then yes, you have the mind of Christ. You didn't, you didn't grow into it. You didn't develop it. You were given it. In other words, if you are a Christian, then yes, you have the mind of Christ. It's been given you not from you but it's in you and of course at the same time the answer could be no 
it could be no. If Jesus is not real to you, he's just a historical figure, a picture on a wall, a picture in a book, uh, you know, just a name from history. If, he's, if, if you don't love him because you don't know him or you, don't, you really don't know that he can be known, how can you know someone from history? Um, if you really don't get the gospel, or here's what you don't get. If you don't get why others seem to be so profoundly moved at this, uh, you know, when you don't get the gospel, what in the world is everyone else getting so wound up about? Get together once a week and learn more about it and sing and all that. What If you don't get that, and if you don't really, if you don't want Christ meddling with your loves and desires and ambitions you know if you don't want to love what christ loves you aren't don't you don't and you don't want to you know don't desire what christ desires grieve at what grieves christ then 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 no of course you don't have the mind of christ because you haven't been given it no matter and this is really to paul's point no matter how bright you are or smart you are or how worldly wise you become, or how powerful you become, or how influential, or how rich. It doesn't, none of that matters. You're as clueless about this as Pilate standing before Jesus saying, I don't think you realize who you're talking to here. You don't have a clue. This working of God's grace and man's will in coming to faith. What a mystery it is. It's a profound mystery. We sing it today. I know not how I came to have the faith to believe. And, you, and, you, and that's right. You don't. But whosoever will may come. The Spirit and the bride say come let him who is thirsty come and whoever will whoever desires take the water of life without price because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved be willing to believe be willing to receive and it will be given you to both believe and receive it's a mystery how it goes how they come together it's behind the curtain but it's a mystery that is known and a mystery that is experienced and a mystery that is lived out by anyone who will and if you're living it now, you thank God for it, don't you? Thanks, thank you for letting me in. Thank you for opening the eyes. Open the eyes of my friend. Open the eyes of my relative. Do in them what you did in me. Lord, may we who believe remember this morning that we did not believe because of our own cleverness our own righteousness our own wisdom but because of your grace toward us 
you made the spiritually dead to become spiritually alive. You made the spiritually blind to see. You made us partakers of your nature. You made us sharers in the mind of Christ. You let us know what we could never have known apart from the powerful working of your spirit in ours. May our lives in the week to come and for the rest of our lives be a fitting response to what you've done for us and what you've done in us and what is yet to come. Let the mind of Christ inform us, remind us, guide us, rebuke us, correct us. May, may Christ increase and ourselves decrease. May we lose our lives in Christ that we might find them again in Him. And do in others what you've done in all who, are truly, who truly are in Christ. Quicken the spiritually dead. Give sight to the spiritually blind. Let those who are wise in their own eyes drink from your wisdom, which is Christ and Him crucified. We pray in His name. Amen.